Welcome to episode 49 of Literary Disco, sports, sports, and more sports. In honor of the Winter Olympics, today is all about athletics and athletes. First up, in the bookshelf revisit, Todd, Julia, and I will each present a favorite book or passage about sports, and then we'll discuss two articles, Why Don't More Athletes Take a Stand by Gary Smith, which first appeared in Sports Illustrated last year, and The Most Amazing Bowling Story Ever by Michael J. Mooney, which first appeared in D Magazine. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hey guys. Good, Hello. Good afternoon, good morning, and good day, sir. Are we feeling uh, sporty and athletic? Well, I just watched Ice Dancing oh my God. brunch, so... So did I! I was watching was Ice great. Dancing, too. Well, Todd, I mean, that's not surprising. No, it's not surprising. <laughs> because it was on simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> what is Ice Dancing? I don't even know what this oh is. Oh my this God, is different Ryder. Than... Oh, Sorry. Wow. This is different than figure yes. skating? Oh my God, it it's totally thing? different. You're- well, it's a kind of figure skating, but it's not. It's less rooted in jumps and technical scores, and more rooted in dance. Yes. <laughs> um, is, I, there, is there are there costumes involved? Oh, yeah. Is it like Snoopy on yeah. ice? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like it's Dancing with the like, Stars. You know, I think we all can agree that you know the Olympics. The Winter Olympics barely makes sense from an athletic point of view. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of just uh, jumping and hoping you don't die. Yeah. So I, I've ceased questioning that, but you know, sports like figure skating and gymnastics, you know, like they, they pretend to have some kind of dance or artistic element to them, but really the, where we are with those sports right now is that they're just, people are trying to do such technically difficult things that all the dance elements have really been removed. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's all about the jumps and the spins and, you know, the sheer power of Tara Lipinski's legs. Um, (laughs) whereas ice dancing is more about the music and they usually have humongous, adorable smiles on their faces, which I find enjoyable. I mean, it's not something I have ever gone out of my way to watch, but when we sat down for brunch this morning and there was ice dancing playing all around us, I mean, it was a pleasant way to spend a morning. Oh, I love the Olympics, guys. I don't. I don't get the Olympics. I find them so weird. And, like, I get into it whenever it's on. But, like, I don't know. Come on. Like, the the nationalism is really strange. Uh, and like, Or awesome. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this on a larger level. But, you know, sports are a microcosm of the rest of our emotional and political lives on some level. And the Olympics, they just really go for it. But they go for it with the weirdest sports. You know, and that's why the winter, I mean, the winter Olympics, I think we all agree are 50 times weirder than the summer Olympics, right? Yes. Yes, Mm. absolutely. Swimming is a normal human activity. The cross country skiing and then shooting a rifle is not a normal human activity. Well, I mean, unless you're like a spy or something. The thing about the winter (laughs) games also that I think is, is unusual is like, I can understand how someone becomes a swimmer. I can understand how someone becomes a basketball uh, player or football or baseball or what have you, or gymnastics. I don't know. I just don't can't conceive of how someone at age eleven is like, you know what, mom, I need to I need to take up the luge. Like, how how yeah. do you even like? You have to live in a yeah. place where there's a luge tube, or you have to know other right. lugers. I mean, it's not it's not <laughs> something you can just go do in your backyard. Well, so you know, I mean, a lot of what we're talking about and probably what we will get into today is like it's so interesting to me how we narrativize sports. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It seems like somebody can define a sport with their story even more than they can define a sport with their athleticism. Mm-hmm. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, if, if there's a good story behind a, a, an athlete, 
um, whether they're actually any good at the sport is almost besides the point. Yeah, I feel like there's so many great athletes, but to be a athlete that goes down in history, you need the story. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I think you right. still have to be a good athlete, a really good yeah, athlete. Yeah, there's a threshold, right? You have to have achieved a certain level. But... Or it has to be something so outside the our, our comprehension, and the person has to have such a, a profound lack of ability to be interesting. So, for instance, when you know, I always watch the opening ceremonies of the Olympics, and they say, you know, they have one person from um, Trinidad Tobago who will be here doing the toboggan. That's a lot of T words, by the way. Trinidad Tobago doing the toboggan. <laughs> and, uh, and they say he knows he has no chance of even placing or getting anywhere near the medal stand. But what he's gone through, Bob, take it away. And then, you know, it's that 10-minute right. mini Behold. documentary of him, you know. Mm-hmm eating grubs and mice and learning how to do the toboggan, you know, on a tricycle in the Sudan or wherever the fuck it is. And, and right. not I mean, even from Trinidad. No, not even, not even from Trinidad and Tobago. Now he's in the Sudan. He travels to the Sudan. <laughs> the Sudan's a little easier for him. But that's, I mean, and I, we'll talk about this, I suspect, when we get to the, the two essays we're actually going to talk about. But that's that thing that if you have no rooting interest in a team or in this case, you know, the nationalism of chanting USA, USA. Um, we want to have that empathetic response to a human being. You know, we're looking for connection mm-hmm. in everything. In a book we read, in a TV yeah. show we watch, in a song we hear, just the person who's going to make us our latte at Starbucks so that they don't spit in it. We're trying to make that connection. It's, it's That's the sports story that makes me want to jump up and down. I don't give a shit about the skeleton but when I find out this poor woman's had this series of failures, was run over and broke her legs, and then had a fucking miscarriage, I'm like, she has to have something good happen to her. Well, and right. I, I'm just realizing why I like the Olympics, and I, I don't know if it's been real on the podcast before. I also, you know, pretty much have no interest in regular sports. Right. You know, like, oh, I can, I enjoy a basketball game or whatever, but I don't have the emotional investment in it. Because, and we're going to get back to this with uh, one of the pieces we re- we read. What I like about the Olympics is watching people find new thresholds of human achievement, of doing yes. something that has never been done before. I mean, like I was into, I was got into Michael Phelps because you know, not because he's in any way like a compelling individual, because all he does basically is eat and swim. But to watch him. <laughs> amazing like physically perfect um oh man it was it was really exciting because they're adding not only to their own story but to like the story of humankind and what we can what we can do so i like yeah. the, that's why i like the olympics is like what how how much further can we push our own bodies or manipulate our environments like by making pools faster or whatever so that we're we're breaking these insane records. In the case mm-hmm. of running, and I, I decided not to pick this as my revisit. I mean, maybe we can get into the re- revisits now. But, um, <laughs> you know, I've talked about before a book, uh, Born to Run, on ultramarathoning. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting because, you know, like the marathon is essentially like a random distance. It's not any kind of optimal distance for our bodies to run. So ultramarathons are where people who maybe would have run a marathon 50 years ago, that's what they're choosing to do now because you can break records by hours or you can, you know, have like a complete, an experience that you can, couldn't have conceived of before you did it and that millions of people aren't already doing. You know what? I I have one brief question about the Olympics and then we should 
say what we're reading here. Um, do you guys have a hierarchy of rooting during the Olympics? I ask that because I clearly do. So, I don't know what so that means. okay, so obviously, where does France fall? Well, we're gonna get to that. So obviously, <laughs> I root for the USA, 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 USA. Uh, I root for uh, America first, and then after America, I root for the Allied Powers for World War II. <laughs> the traditional, are you serious? Yes, the traditional ally. I like I didn't even realize it was a thing that I was doing until like I thought. Why am I rooting for Italy here, uh, or against Italy, or for France, or for England? And then um, uh, Israel for the Jews, um, <laughs> and that—that's always a losing proposition. Turns out Jews not great at sports. Um, and then it's anyone who is competing against Russia, because in my mind Russia is still the absolute enemy from our childhood. And I think I put this on our Twitter when I was uh, watching it the other day, because when we were kids, Russia was going to come kill us all. So I root ardently against Russia. I mean, my grandfather had to escape Russia with the Cossacks on his tail, so I got some beef with Russia. Um, and then, quite frankly, I still have a little bit of a problem with Germany. Um, and so <laughs> I actively root against Germany. And then uh -huh. I'm, uh, I like all of these Soviet republics who stepped out and have become more democratic. Um, and mm. then, barring any of those things, it's whoever has the super hot snowboarder. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many hot women snowboarders. Wow. What is the incredible number? <laughs> also, curly girls yes! are hot, too. Yes. Like, curly girls. <laughs> I was like, is that part of being a curler? Is like, you have to be kind of like moody hot like they have this scowl like these russian blonde women they're just mean looking i love them wow well um i pretty much just watch it and i'm like oh they seem happy cool that's me that's my allegiance Wait, so Todd, you completely avoided China in your hierarchy, like China. Yeah, yeah I, you haven't mentioned them in I your you know what? ridiculous stereotypes. You have a list. very 1980s. I do. I don't. <laughs> I, think, I don't. I think what we just realized is that Todd never grew no, up in 1985. I don't really find myself rooting for and or against China or Japan, even though Japan was against us in World War II. Um, I don't find myself ardently rooting against them for anything. Hmm. And those Japanese snowboarders were great. Yeah, or there was. There's also a great Russian uh, speed skater who left Korea to speed skate for Russia, and I found myself rooting for him despite the fact that he was a Russian, but he had left it's Korea. Like a, a double negative. Yeah, it was a really weird thing. Was it his rejection of? No, that no. Okay, you're just nuts. I don't think there's any... No, but I think Todd's being honest. I, I think yeah. I think a lot of people do this kind of calculus in their head without realizing yeah. it, you know? But, like, that's kind of the point of the Olympics, right? Oh, Is yeah. to represent these countries, and, like, they're, they're, like there's definitely some political oh, yeah. meaning behind all this posturing and the narrative-making and the flag-waving, and it's that's kind of why I get... I don't really like Well, it. and just last night there was a guy talking who had, you know... He had come in seventh in something, speed skating or something. And he said, you know, the American people sent me here to do a job and I failed. And I was like, oh, well, I mean, I don't I don't personally think you are a failure, sir. And as an American person, <laughs> I don't skater, I don't I don't want you thinking Thank you for your service. I don't want you thinking I'm mad at you. I mean, I was disappointed that you didn't win. But I mean, I'm not I'm not going to, like, take my tax dollars back. 
But I think when you wear USA across your chest, you know, obviously that's it's different than, you know, just saying, you know, Raiders or something. You are representing all of us at home. And I, there, there's got to be a, a huge emotional weight that goes along with that. All right. So let's talk some revisits. Yes. Um, all right. What did you guys dig up from the bookshelf? Who wants to go first? Well, I'll go first. Um, <laughs> you guys are going to make fun of me. Um, so since I have previously revisited two um, actual memoirs about sports before, the one I just mentioned, Born to Run, and then the one I mentioned recently called Swimming to Antarctica, I was mm-hmm. kind of having trouble coming up with something. Um, but then I realized um, that we have never talked about one of the greatest sports uh, scenes in all of uh, world history literature, the history of world literature, um, which is the st- horse uh, racing steeplechase scene in Anna Karenina. <laughs> Have you guys read Anna Karenina or seen a movie? Before? I've never read it. Uh, no. no, I saw the movie um, recently. It is, it is amazing. And you know, it's of course I thought of horses as a sport. I was like, Ugh, swimming, running, and horses. That's, that was my train of thought. Uh, <laughs> But um, it's an it's really an amazing scene. I mean, obviously, I know, I know. It's I I'll see myself out. Um, (laughs) But uh, it's actually it's you know it's probably the best chapter in you know one of the best books ever written. So Anna Karenina is about a woman, Anna Karenina, who is having an affair with a, a young hot man named Vronsky. And she and her husband go to see him um, enter this steeplechase. And if you guys don't already know, a steeplechase is the race where, you know, you jump over ditches and hedges and water and whatever. It's very dangerous. And um, especially when fictionalized. Vronsky buys this horse, and it's a like a beautiful mare named Frau Frau, and uh, Frau Frau. Let, let's let's be direct. That's a dumb name for a horse. But go ahead. <laughs> it's Russian. We'll just leave right. It. Well, as you know, I have a big problem. Todd's already I'm against. already oh against. Oh my god! Them. Yeah. What am I even saying? <laughs> this, this to you is a nightmare. So, chase my he, chase my grandfather out of that country so that I can have a life in America. <laughs> Bastards. So, yeah, Vronsky and Frau Frau are, um, I can't believe I remember it so well, but it was, it's just a really well written and exciting scene. And they're in the steeplechase and they're winning and everything, but I mean, obviously it's, it's Tolstoy, so it's like written in this really dramatic way where, uh, Frau Frau obviously, um, obviously represents Anna Karenina and it's like, how is he treating this woman and like, what are, you know, the horse is so skittish and all this stuff. And then a terrible accident happens at the steeplechase as all doesn't happen. You know, every time a steeplechase occurs in fiction, something bad's going to happen, guys. Um, and Anna Karenina, um, she's watching with her husband and she starts crying. And that's, you know, like it's this big tension in the book where it's revealed that she's like in love with this person and, you know, it's really, it's just a great scene, and it has all the drama of a true horse race. It's its just so dramatic, and it's about their private lives and their public lives, and, oh, it's just a really great scene. It's worth reading all of Anna Karenina just for that chapter. I saw, I the, I saw the movie yeah. not long ago, and the movie was actually, I thought, quite good. And it's a very strange movie. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I had read parts of Anna Karenina. I've, I'd never finished it. And... Uh, 
it's a strange movie because they actually stage it like a play, and so the sets are moving in and out behind oh, yeah, it. And I heard some, that was awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, and there are some large uh, set pieces that aren't as if on a stage, but you know the passage of time is handled that way. It's a really sort of inventive way of, of telling the tale. Um, and the steeplechase scene was very moving, and I understood it all from that. And then I also thought, what a weird thing to make horses do. <laughs> you know? I know. I know. People complain that regular horse racing is cruel, which it is. But you know, it's nothing compared to these insane steeplechases where horses just die all the time. Yeah. My revisit actually um, has to do with two things we've talked about in the past. Oddly enough, um, so you guys might remember we had a story song episode, and we listened to a song that mm, you Jesus. motherfuckers didn't like called Buckner's oh, Bolero. I don't know if you guys remember that. I, I don't. Yes. I we'll, blocked we'll, it out. Play it again. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and we'll put a link up to that everywhere uh, tonight. Um, <laughs> but So there's the, the famous story of Bill Buckner having the ball shoot through his legs in the World Series and the Mets went on to win the World Series. And then the other thing we've talked about in the past is the writer Ron Curry Jr., whose book, Flimsy Little Plastic Miracles, we uh, talked about some time ago. And uh, who I got a chance to meet in real life the other day, or not the other day, a month or so ago. He's a great guy. Um, at any rate, he wrote a short story, and this is one of the first times I had actually found his work before, called One Play. And it is about, basically, uh, the son of Bill Buckner coming back to avenge all of the years of abuse that Bill Buckner received from fans for having the ball go through his legs. Um, and it's a short story you can find online. It was in the, short, the uh, literary magazine Willow Springs several years ago. Um, and it tracks sort of the, the story of what happened to Bill Buckner, about what happened to him that night when the ball went through his legs, about the abuse that he received from fans, about his next year playing baseball. But then Ron Curry really begins to fictionalize it and has the father die uh, at the end of the year. Bill, Bill Buckner is still alive. And then his son becomes a, a very good baseball player and is called up by the Boston Red Sox and has a great game. And I won't ruin the story, but at the end of the game, he gets his father's revenge. So you ruined the story. Yeah, 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 yeah. I did. yeah that's right, you I did. Yeah, I yeah. just, uh, that's did. what I, I did, okay. yeah. I, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't get the revenge by killing everybody. At least not literally. So this is sort of like an alternate history baseball story. version yes. of, baseball, of a real baseball. Yeah, it's, it's actually sort of fascinating, and that's that's why yeah. I picked it. It's, it's a true story basically turned into fiction with... All of the backstories of of their lives, you know, completely different. And then with this sort of wish fulfillment ending of the son coming back to to save his father in a way. And it's not like the father was a great guy in in the story. Um, so it's 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 a very interesting story. And Ron Curry Jr., you know, he's as you guys will remember from uh, Flimsy Little Plastic Miracles, he's a really unusual writer. You know, he. Mm -hmm. He will go huge, long passages of just narrative without an actual scene and will nest drama inside big paragraphs of things. And he does that in this short story, too. And it's, you know, he's clearly a Boston Red Sox fan. And, uh, and so I, I think a lot of it also is the expression on his part of, you know, of course he was disappointed, but he's also not one of those people who's like, and I got ruined my fucking life by missing that ball. I'm going to kill his whole fucking family. Um, and I don't know why that person has that voice in my head, yeah, but he does. The most distinctive voice I've ever heard you make. Oh, I've, I've <laughs> it got was it. verging <sighs> on uh, Buffalo Bill from uh, Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> <laughs> it puts the lotion in the basket. 
<laughs> Buffalo Bill's most challenging wait, role yet. Wait, was she a great big fat person? You're you're actually getting closer to Buffalo Bill and Yoda's child. With that mm. noise. <laughs> there's a there's a hint of Yoda there. Uh, so anyway, it, it's a it's a it's a cool little short story. It's not terribly long, but it's a story I've thought about a lot over the years because I think it also for those of you who subsequent to hearing our episode on Ron's book have gotten interested in him as a writer. It really starts to show his formulation as a writer, the things that he's obsessed about. And I think he's obsessed about identity and he's obsessed about, um, you know, the way emotions are twisted and he's obsessed about things that are large in our culture, having bigger meaning than what they should have, which I think is a big part of what sports is. Um, so mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's a neat sort of um, evolutionary story from Ron Curry Jr. Um, that I think those of you who liked his book might enjoy. So I'll, I'll put a link up to it on our, our Twitter and our, uh, and our Facebook for you guys to read it. Sounds great. Um, I had a hard time because I actually realized I have not read that many things about sports. <laughs> like, I can't think of a single novel that I've read about, like, a sports team. Or I, I, It was really hard. I was staring at my bookshelf, like, actually going book by book, being like, Wait a minute. What if I? Re- I mean, Billy Lynn's long halftime yeah. walk was like one of the few things I. But then I was like, even that's not really about, a, you know, the athletes. It's it's about military. Um, so I don't know. It, it was a. This was a tough one. And then I remembered one of my favorite books from when I was in high school, and I haven't read this since I was about thirteen or fourteen, but it's really good. So I just ordered it again because uh, I don't have a copy. Um, it's a, a collection of short stories. Um, by Alan Silito, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. Oh my god, I love book. that book. It is an incredible book and I've I had completely forgotten it but I when I was thinking about like well what you know what book, what stories or what have I read that put me in the mind of an athlete and I remembered the title story from this collection which is a it's almost entirely in the mind of a guy who's running this race. Um, for a prison school that he 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 robbed he robs a bakery or something when he's a kid, and so he ends up in this um, reform school in England in the 1960s. That's when the book was written. I think maybe it's set in the 50s. I'm not sure. It was written in the 60s in England, and um, it's it's you know it's it's ostensibly just the story of him running this race, and he he ends up throwing the race um, as a sort of political. Um, stance against the school that's making him run this race but the collection the story in particular and then the collection as a whole is really an incredible examination of class and Mm. it is one of the greatest working class story collections uh, i've ever read um so i can't i I actually can't wait to reread this book so todd you've never read it i've never even heard of it oh it's so good i had um, to read it in high school it's just a series of short stories about working class England in the 1950s, 60s. And it's not uplifting by any means. It's actually very depressing. <laughs> because, you know, it's it's about the oppression of, of class and how these people cannot, mm-hmm. they, they become, you know, like in, in the title story, in this story, The Loneliness, The Long Distance Runner, he's being used by his school um, because they want to beat another school, you know, in, in this race. And so he knows that, while he's getting some sort of recognition and fame, he's also being, he's also just reducing his identity to a cog in the machine of this school. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that becomes a metaphor, of course, for working class people in general throughout all of England at that time. Um, anyway, it's a remarkable book. And, uh, and, it, and it just, I mean, even just the title is really great. The Loneliness of the Long yeah. Distance Runner. And, 
you know, that's what it's really about. It's about this guy's mindset as he's running this race. So anyway, I have to reread it because I can't go into too much more detail without revisiting it. But um, it actually it sounds out. somewhat reminiscent of a book, a, a book of nonfiction I just reviewed um, not long ago for the LA Review of Books called Kick and Run by a writer named Jonathan Wilson about uh, soccer, or as they call it in England, football. Um, and the basically the, the divisions of class and... Um, and for him as a Jew growing up in England, that's why I think they had me review it as he was a Jew, um, about how soccer was the great democratic equalizer. It didn't matter who you were when you stepped on the pitch. Right. All it mattered was whether or not you could play the game. Right. And, and it really goes deeply into the different neighborhoods and stuff. I think that's something that happens in perhaps in England that does not, or in Europe that is not, quite as profound here on and i guess we'll talk about that as it relates to the why don't more athletes take a stand about the economic and social divisions of athletes and and what it all means and with that we'll uh, head into our essay Welcome back, everybody, to Literary Disco. So, as you may or may not have gleaned from the first half of the episode, we have Olympic fever here at Literary Disco. Woo! I know I'm feeling it. Uh, I I don't know how many times either of you have referenced the Pamchenko in the last couple Zero. weeks. Zero. Zero for me. Wow. What about the movie Ice Castles? Zero. Do you guys remember Ice Castles? Zero for me. Do you know the movie Ice Castles, no, Julia? No, I don't. Do you know the movie Ice Castles, Ryder? No. Oh, my God. What is so, it? here's the story. And then we'll get to the literature of sports. I want our listeners to know that Ryder had his head, has his head in his hands. For most of this episode. There is an Sincerely. ice skater whose name I don't remember. And now, now, here's the other important thing. is I don't remember if this is based on a true story or not. I don't think it is when you find out how it ends. So, there's an ice skater. She's super good. And she's played by actress Lynn Holly Johnson. And she's a great ice skater, and she gets injured. And the injury causes her to go blind. But mm. she still has the will of a champion. And she needs to fall in love with someone. And she falls in love with Robbie Benson. And Robbie Benson gets her back on the ice. And goddammit, she's going to get back out there. The blind. problem is... the Blind. And the powers that be won't let a blind person skate for reasons that are going to become grossly apparent. <laughs> So discrimination. It's or total discrimination. It's really dangerous. Or, or there's the there's those the Paralympics that they have now where, where people with various disabilities get to do stuff. But at this time in 1978, there was no outlet for a blind figure skater. Ugh. So they get her trained. They they show her the entire ice skating rink. They get the dimensions in her head. They, she knows the entire thing and god damn it, Robbie Benson gets her out there and she performs and she's amazing and I don't remember if it ends at the Olympics or at some world championships or whatever. It doesn't matter. She goes out there and she does the skate of a lifetime. Obviously. Everyone's cheering. Yes. But here's the problem. Oh no. They didn't account for what happens at the end of a remarkable skate. Do you guys know what happens at the end of a remarkable skate? They throw flowers on the ground. They throw flowers on the ground. No. They didn't take into account the flowers. What? And so, yeah, they throw roses on the Does ice. Does she die? No, she falls. And oh. then well. everyone realizes, oh my God, she can't see. 
she's blind. And then Robbie Benson comes out there and lifts her up. And then, USA! USA! This well, reminds I me... I don't know if the USA part happens, but... This <laughs> sounds almost identical to my favorite movie as a child called Wild Hearts Can't Be Broken about horse diving, when in the 1920s they used to dive horses off of, of two-story platforms. Of course, that's platforms. your favorite movie from when... <laughs> yeah, wow. what a shocking revelation. You were revelation. the only person who saw that movie. Uh, I no? remember. I remember the trailer for that movie being like, wait, what? Horse jumping? Like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Uh, no, that was a real thing, and what happened was, and this is a true story, um, one of the great horse divers of all time she dove and her she didn't close her eyes and her eyes were open and she went blind from the impact and then she had to learn how to jump on a running horse on a diving board and continue to dive because that was her passion in life even though she was blind it's a great movie and again another sport that seems completely realistic and and should be practiced by everybody (laughs) well that gets us to uh our reading this week like a football or basketball (laughs) (laughs) So we uh, we decided to take a look at two pieces about sports this week, and and of course they're not really about sports, and then they're all about sports. Um, the first one, and and both of these essays actually appear in this year's Best American Sports Writing, um, which came out from uh, uh, Houghton Mifflin earlier in the year. But you can find them online. We'll we'll put links to them up as well. So the first story is an essay called "The Most Amazing Bowling Story Ever" by Michael J. Mooney, um, and it is about a man named Bill Fong, who came so close to perfection and failed, but might have been having a stroke and didn't know it while he was doing this. I mean, we just spoiled this very short essay, but it's crazy because as it's being described, you think that you're like, this is about someone who bowled a perfect night and then... It had a lot of twists. A lot right. more twists than I was expecting. Well, why don't we explain what a perfect bowling night is? It means getting three 300 scores in a row, right? And that's only been achieved by right. 21 right. people in the world. And so this guy, Bill Fong, one night at his, you know, he's the member of like four different leagues or, you know, he just is constantly bowling, basically. He had a night where he bowled two 300 games and then entered the third one and the final frame didn't right. didn't make that's it. right didn't make you got it oh but and there was only one pin left one pin between him and being the 22nd person in the world to to do this oh the heartbreak <laughs> the, the thing about bill fong <clears throat> is also is, is that he's not a remarkable guy and yes. that's that is the the thing about this essay is well, that's that, also the thing about bowling. Well, there's several general, things, right? Like bowling is right. such an interesting sport. I mean, is it even a sport? You know, like it's one of those like. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Yes. Like the difference between a game and a sport sometimes is a little like. Right. Uh, how do you draw the line? Mm-hmm. Here? Because it's not like it's not like because he bowls, Bill Fong is like in amazing shape, right? Like. If, no. if, you're, if you could be like a great bowler and like smoke and drink, for instance, do you know what I mean? Like you could have a, a heavy smoking habit and drinking habit and still be a world class bowler. So that to but, me kind of is like, eh, are we putting that in the same category as Michael Phelps or? I, it, it's but the thing is that you have, but yeah, I agree. Bowling is weird, but I would still say classify it as a sport because it's about a physical precision and a physical okay. skill. What about and nothing and a, else? And, and a mental pool? skill. Billiards. I think pools, 
it's it it is a kind of well is it a sport or is it a game that that's that's a weird that's a weird distinction really i don't know i mean Mm. i just feel like if you could be drinking a beer in one hand while you're doing it it's not i don't (laughs) think it is i don't think it's a sport it's a little hard for me to be like i don't know because i'm looking at i mean obviously there's a skill set involved in 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 bowling right but i just don't know if that skill set is athletic in nature or i don't know this is up for debate i mean i mean i'm pretty solid at skee ball which is almost identical to bowling and i would never claim to be uh, a skee ball athlete julia the gauntlet has been uh is it thrown are we running through the gauntlet what do we do Dropped. whatever happens with the gauntlet <laughs> <laughs> i will dominate you in Oh, we should we I I have a vision. <laughs> Our own literary disco skee ball league where it's only the three of us at the Santa Monica Pier playing skee ball. Well, okay, Ryder, now you're starting you're swaying me now because um skee ball, darts and bowling all share a critical thing which is that sometimes you can just throw like a crazy fucking wild man and, and still do a good job. Yes. Yeah. So that's a, you know, you can't you can't accidentally break a race record because you're feeling crazy. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. but you can in skee ball, which is why I like it. <laughs> well, and I think, I think with, uh, with bowling and specifically with Bill Fong, I mean, the, the, what makes this an amazing essay, uh, and I, I really think it is an excellent essay and yeah, it's short, um, but, but it handles all the things is that in a lot of ways I was reminded of one of the two essays about Iowa that we read, mm-hmm. um, which went into sort of the cultural upbringing of a person who then made a terrible decision and killed a bunch of people. But here we have Bill Fong, who has basically been a disappointment to everybody in his life, his personal life. And he'd wanted to be a golfer. He'd wanted to be a bowler. And, you know, he he had grown up. He went to high school with Michelle Obama. Um, You know, he he, but he was not a great student. Um, He was not he he was no one's prize, basically. And he he, just wanted unremarkable guy. Right. Like, right. Just a just a normal human being moment of being remarkable. Oh, it's kind of tragic. It's, It's horribly tragic. But it's also so human. I mean, don't we all want a moment where we are at our absolute best and people recognize, oh, my God, they are at their absolute best. They have achieved everything they're going to achieve. But then, invariably, even if you achieve that, that next day, where do you go? You know, what, what's left for you to do? Mm-hmm. That's, that's like the challenge of the presidency. Either you go and you, be, you, know, you start saving the world or you just go home and you paint pictures of clown faces or something like your John Wayne Gacy. Not saying any current former president's doing that. Uh, George Bush. Um, <laughs> Such weird paintings. Such weird paintings. They're very weird paintings. Um, but what, what this essay really does is it, you know, it breaks down the sort of dedication of even what we can't figure out as a simple game or a simple sport. He spends thousands of hours trying to work on his, his bowling game. Yeah. Something that we just drive by. So everyone in every town has a bowling alley, right? right? And you drive by it and you just think, oh, yeah, I haven't bowled in 20 years. That was a good time. I got right. fucking hammered. That and, and, and yeah. I ate, yeah. <laughs> I ate a bunch of nachos and threw up on, uh, on a bowling alley. That was a great night. Um, <laughs> but inside that bowling alley, there are people in this other subculture who that's their most important thing. And, and, 
and being good at it is their most important thing. And that fascinated me about this guy. Yeah. Well, I was reminded of, like, um, really intense poker players, too. You know, like, it, it has a similar mm-hmm. sort of statistical approach and focus. And, yeah, you're right, this kind of smoky backroom subculture of, like, dedicated kind of obsessive people, right? I mean, you have right. to be somewhat obsessive to be playing a sport for thousands of hours that that really is not, like, you know, people don't air, like, television stations don't air bowling matches. Bull, but they, they used do. to. Do they? They I used mean, to. Just, oh, yeah. Professional bowling on TV used to be a huge thing. Interesting. They used to show it in the afternoons on ABC on, on the weekends right after ice skating, as it happens. Hmm. Um, but now, you know, you'll you'll see it at 3 o'clock in the morning on ESPN 7 or whatever. Right. Um, but, like, like, there was famous bowlers. Earl Anthony is a famous bowler. Mm-hmm. And, like, when I was a kid, I was aware of who Earl Anthony was. Um, but it's not, I mean, it's not the level of LeBron James now. Even if you don't know sports, you guys have heard of Le- LeBron James, presumably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ryder, Ryder, have, Ryder, have you? He's the one who's gotten the most touchdowns in the, uh, right? Okay, here we go. Right. He's yeah, done the... that's it. <laughs> yeah. He did the, the most he... triple sow cows at the last, uh... Right. In the well, rugby he, game, he yeah. scored the goal at the penalty, the most penalty yeah. kicks he scored through the, uh, yeah. so the, the baskets. The he most heartbreaking point of all this, other than Ryder's complete lack of ability to be um, able to talk about sports, is the scene in this essay where Bill Fong talks about what bowling has meant to him. And it's it's the point at which I knew that this was going to be an amazing essay. He says, I guess bowling just always filled whatever emptiness I had. Yeah. Oh, fuck. <laughs> See, you know, I isn't that a cliche, though? I mean, like, I really like the essay and I really like the story. But I feel like sometimes, and this is a problem that I sometimes have when I'm reading sports writing, is that we have so many cliches around sports and sports is already representing something else. You know, it's already Mm -hmm. a representative act. It's already symbolic. So Mm -hmm. to put symbolism on top of symbolism often feels so heavy handed to me. I mean, that, that does not to me sound like an original, like how many times have we heard that? Like I do this because it fills emptiness. You know, that's, that's almost sounds like to me someone who is in tune with the sport, not even knowing how to express it. I wasn't impressed by that statement, Bill Fong, although I was <laughs> impressed by, you know, his ability to to bowl. You, you guys know what I mean, though? It's like I would rather just hear the story in all of its details. I liked hearing about, like, the oil on the out, on the lanes, which I never knew about, and I liked hearing, you know, never the backstory of his that. life. But to, yeah. hear, to hear somebody making meaning of that, to generalize... You know, but what what, it what if it's him. true? I mean, oh, I, I totally believed it, it. I mean, I believe that he's yeah. bought into that cliche. Like he he thinks mm-hmm. that this bowling gives him meaning and it gives his right. life meaning, and so he needs it so badly to define him. And you know, like because the, the the typical sports like the story of every 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 story that an athlete tells themselves is that they're going to come from nothing and single handedly. Like Rudy, right? Like that's the story right. we all want. Like that's the narrative of every sport. It's like you come out of nowhere and you're the best at this. It's like a superhero story, really. Mm-hmm. And it's hard, yeah. like, mm-hmm. you know, that you discover that you are the best pitcher in the world or the best whatever, and then you get to live that moment. And here's a guy who's bought that story of 
sports but never been able to achieve it like in golf he couldn't do it and now he's picked bowling which is the one area where he's hoped to be able to to find that meaning to find that narrative and he almost does and doesn't quite get there That's, and he says oh. he says that line so so basically what happens is uh as Ryder explained he bowls two perfect games in a row so two 300s and the entire bowling alley now is watching him and if this were a movie it would end with a slow clap you know mm-hmm. um and so right around the last two frames of this last game he starts to feel hot and sweaty and there, apparently there's video of him and he's drenched in sweat and he starts to feel sort of disembodied basically but he still manages to get a strike but it's, the feeling is getting worse and then the last thing that he does people are cheering for him and he only knocks down nine pins. The tenth pin doesn't fall. And he says, that pin makes me like the Rodney Dangerfield of bowling. I get no respect. But the fact is, everyone respects him because the guy was remarkable that night. Yeah. But, but what happens after that, and what makes this story all the more amazing, and we're just going to give all the spoilers here because it's an yeah, essay. It's a true it's really story. Short. Yeah. Is it turns out the reason he was feeling disembodied and sweating profusely is that he was having a stroke while he was bowling his perfect game. And then he has a series of strokes after that point that debilitates him, and he has to come back to become a good bowler again. And this is all in the space of just a couple years. He, he has his perfect game experience in 2010, and this article came out in 2012, and he's already bowling competitively again after the series of strokes. But he's also... He, he can't even conceptualize the fact that the stroke makes it all the more incredible. He still is pissed off that he didn't get that one pin. He feels like, even though he was literally stroking out at the point at which he was doing it, that somehow people think less of him that he didn't get that perfect game. I I couldn't bowl a 300 if everything in my body was going right. It wouldn't, there's no possible way. Well, and then there's the question of, did the stress from the streak cause the stroke? Or at right. least, you know, push it over the edge and that's an interesting question too and i think like therein lies the whole tension between like the athlete and the audience because for him of course like he's looking for perfection but for the rest of us when we hear these stories what we really want is slight imperfection like we always want a close game right like mm-hmm. i'm i watch the super bowl this year as i do every year and the seahawks writer that's amazing. the that's the game where the <laughs> The football teams, mm, mm-hmm. they they mm-hmm, win. Mm-hmm. F- they get right, a ball. They're kicking, the, they're kicking it, right? And then they, at the end, they get a kicking. There's kicking. They, they give them a giant ball at the end. Right, it's called story, a Super Bowl. But you know, so uh, <laughs> the Seahawks played an amazing. I mean, the athleticism was perfect but everyone in the united states even seahawks fans thought it was a terrible game because they it was almost a complete shutout right yeah Yeah. so and you know we i mean i would argue that for this bowler you know he's maybe he would have gotten sponsorships or whatever but now he's this this is the most American story of all is missing mm-hmm. it by that much. And so he sacrificed himself. He sacrificed his idea of perfection for like the greater American narrative. Like people are going to love this story. People are going to repeat the story all the time. And he's got his, you know, color picture in the newspaper and all that good stuff. So, you know, like I think that he, I think he did it, you know, he did it even 
by virtue of him having a stroke and messing up, you know, he achieved more than what he would have with a perfect game. Then he'd just mm-hmm. be number 23 and somebody else would be number 24, you know, however. Well, that leads us to, I think, uh, the next piece, which is about sort of the role of the athlete in society. Um, and this piece is called Why Don't More Athletes Take a Stand? And it's by a writer named Gary Smith. It appeared in Sports Illustrated in 2012. And it's also, uh, as I said, in the Best American Sports Writing right now. And it's sort of uh, coincidental this week that we're talking about. We had planned to talk about this uh, essay before um, the football player Michael Sam came out and announced that he was gay. Um, so Michael Sam, for those of you who don't know, and it's been all over the news, so it's probably out there, um, was a, is a very talented college football player who was uh, named the best defensive player in his conference, the SEC, this past year, and will be going into the NFL draft, which is held in April and is likely to be picked in one of the high rounds. He is a super talented college football player. And he is the first current athlete. So uh, Jason Collins, who's an NBA player, came out of the closet uh, and announced that he was gay, but he's no longer in the league. That happened um, earlier in the year. Um, But Michael Sam is just now entering professional sports, and he made this stand. He said, I'm gay. I told my teammates I was gay. I'm a football player. I'm an African-American. I'm gay, and I'm proud of who I am. And, you know, and that's that. It also happened, coincidentally, on the same week that this huge bullying scandal came out um, in the NFL about the way athletes treat one another in, on the Miami Dolphins team, and uh, which caused uh, mm-hmm. a kid named Jonathan Martin to quit the team earlier in the year. And uh, it revealed this, you know, a, a not surprising uh, culture of abuse and bullying and sexism and misogyny and all that sort of thing that you was no surprise to me um, that goes on the locker rooms of uh, the NFL. Uh, So what this essay concerns most directly is a football player named Juanman Joseph Williams, who is a walk-on defensive back at uh, Virginia, who decides to, along with a bunch of students at the college, go on a hunger strike. Um, And that opens up this huge amount of national attention for him, for what they're striking about, which is a living wage for people who work at the college, um, but which opens up these huge ethical questions about athletes and sports, the uh, the amateur athlete and the amateur athlete industrial complex, basically, uh, that <laughs> yeah, is college athletics. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I had not heard of this story previous to reading this essay. I, I don't know how I missed it um, because, you know, I follow sports pretty ardently. But it's an absolutely fascinating, it's, a, it's an exhaustive essay, it's quite long, um, but one that's, I think, really worthwhile to read. And it, it really talks about, I think, something that Ryder might have uh, an interesting take on, which is, at what point do you use um, the, the accrual of fame to do things beyond yourself? And they talk a lot about actors and, and what they do, um, but how historically athletes who have a huge bully pulpit have done very little. Yeah. Particularly the modern athlete. Um, so, Ryder, what was what was your take on uh, on the piece? Yeah, well, I I love the I love the essay for the issues it raises and the sort of questions that I I hadn't really considered before, you know. And and really, I love um, talks a lot about specialization and how we essentially, you know, want our at college life we want our academics. Um, and our, our athletes to be completely separated, you know, and that our athletes are essentially supposed to just be non-thinking, mm-hmm. uh, 
uh, robots who achieve greatness for the school and make a lot of these colleges incredible amounts of money, but then that they are not expected to be fully well-rounded individuals um, just in terms of even their time. Um, and he breaks down like the average schedule for an athlete in a college. And it's insane to practice constantly, work on their bodies, you know, follow a diet plan. Like it's an insane lifestyle that I never really considered how damaging that is to individuals um, and perhaps to our culture as a whole, which is the greater point. of, of the, I had a I didn't really like the way it was written. It's mm -hmm. written in this very colloquial um, mm -hmm. Uh, almost dialogue form where the author um, sort of does these weird asides or goes into the heads of his characters. It, it almost felt like I was reading a blog entry sometimes as opposed to an essay. And I don't like that tendency in modern writing. Um, there's mm -hmm. this sort of like, like there's one point where he writes like, but then, oh my God. And he writes, oh my God is one word, like O-M-I-G-O-D, right. like a blogger. And I, he's, I think he's trying to be a little like tongue in cheek, like clever in the mind mm -hmm. of a college student, but it just bothers me. And it felt put on um, the whole voice and tone and approach of this essay really got under my skin. So I had to sort of separate myself from the themes and the issues that it raises, which I find fascinating and exciting um, but as a as a piece of writing, I really hated the way this was written. I you know what I was thinking of when I was reading it is that if John Jeremiah Sullivan had written it, it mm. would be remarkable because yeah. yes. he does a similar thing in that piece on the Miz yeah. um, mm -hmm. that was in mm -hmm. uh, Pulphead that we read. Yeah, uh, I totally agree with you. It, that he he could have written this, I think, straight, yes. and it would have had a, it would have been easier to read and far less um, far less sort of colloquial. But you know what I also thought when I was reading it is. He's writing this for the Sports Illustrated reader, uh, yeah. Yeah. which exactly. is not the reader of The New Yorker or The right. Atlantic or something, but typically. But I also it's feel someone... like that made it even crazier. I mean, the first line is, um, pardon me, I'd like to interrupt your regularly scheduled programming. I mean, that's right. very that doesn't even feel like Sports Illustrated to me. That feels like someone who knows they're about to write a big essay and is getting into this crazy voice. But, I mean, I feel the same way as what I just said about the other one. It's like, with sports, it's there. You have so much already there, you know, and if you can just report mm -hmm. it really well um, and put the details in an amazing order, you know, 99% <laughs> of your work is done already. You don't need all these, like, crazy mm -hmm. literary gymnastics, which I can't believe I'm saying as, you know, host of a literary podcast. But <laughs> I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> You know, I, I just want to hear about the athletes and, and what's going on. Right. Yeah. And this kid is a pretty amazing kid. I mean, yeah. let's let if, if yeah. you guys haven't heard of uh, him, you, you should all read the the article. But I mean, he, here's a kid who is extraordinarily articulate and thoughtful and interesting and came up in the worst possible situations. You know, single mom dragged from shelter to shelter, lived a crazy life, but just crazily articulate and smart and. And understands sort of where he fits in this world. So the well, the I, I touched on it a moment ago, but I'll, I'll just give a little bit more uh, info here. So basically, at the University of Virginia, they've been having over the course of many, many years uh, periodic struggles to give the workers of the university a decent wage. So suddenly, in uh, 2012, they decide uh, a bunch of students are going to go on a hunger strike to try and increase the living wage of the people who basically service these multi-million dollar organizations. And this is happening, of course, across universities. And this is not something I'm not intimate with, with 
being a professor and administrator at a university is understanding sort of how this stuff works. Um, so he, uh, he, he was aware of the situation, but one day he sees them hunger striking and literally just gets a wild hair and says, you know what? Yeah, I could do that. Of all the people who should be able to hunger strike, it's not these people who are just regular students who are subsisting on, you know, canned food or whatever. Mm-hmm. I am a finely tuned athletic machine. He might he might not be a starter on the University of Virginia's football team. He might just be a walk-on. But by the very fact that he is a football player at the University of Virginia, he is in the top 1% of human beings in terms of their bodies, mm-hmm. right? Um and he says, oh, I can take this on. I can do this because I'm built for it. And it, it shows the slow, actually not so pretty fast degradation of what the lack of food is doing to both him physically and mentally, but also then starts to wrap into it what it means that he is a football player, that because he's a football player, people are starting to pay attention when they weren't paying attention for just the average A student at the University of Virginia. Right. And that, to me, opened up just a huge amount of anger <laughs> and um and it makes me upset about the way i view sports and uh, you know i'm a, like i said i'm a huge sports fan and this year has been a hard one i watched this i don't know if either of you saw it, this documentary on frontline about head injuries in football specifically and how essentially the the nfl had hidden data from players for 30 years about Basically, playing football is going to kill you or leave you with Alzheimer's or dementia or, you know, traumatic brain diseases. Um, and so it, it's, it started to weigh on me more. Uh, and then this piece here, this is not stuff that I'm not aware of by being on college campuses about this disparity. But it, I think it opens up a bigger conversation about what we expect from athletes in society. What, what can they do or what should they do? Well, I mean, I think it's so fascinating that um, I mean, obviously, there's the celebrity aspect, and that's why he was getting a lot of attention. But, you know, he's already, in terms of the university valuing him, mostly just a body, you know. So the fact that right. he would turn that very body against them, you know, it's so interesting that he's not rejecting his power as a body altogether. You know what I mean? He's saying, mm-hmm. this is how you think of me. So... Uh, let me use this use same this same instrument he, uh, in another way, which I found just absolutely fascinating. It's not saying like I'm not an athlete; I'm a brainiac. It's saying, you know, I'm still an athlete, and look how look how that can change in the blink of an eye just by you know using my own free will, which I think is so interesting and yeah. wonderful and and very amazing actually that not that more people have not have not done that. Ryder, I'm I'm curious, you know, when when you did that uh, commercial for Move On, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, if I wanted to make a commercial for Move On, and this was during President Obama's first election cycle, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, how much did you have to wager on, okay, if I do this, this is out there? You know, how much right. of what you'd accrued as an actor, as a writer, how much right. did you think about that? Not much, because, I mean, I've always believed that in being as outspoken as possible, you know, like, I... I think I'm just a very political, politically outspoken person. Like, I, I believe that if you believe something, you know, but I think that he talks about that. Like, that's kind of expected of actors, actually. Like, we don't mind mm-hmm. actors, for the most part, standing up for causes or being outspoken. Like, that doesn't seem as big of a deal for some reason as athletes. Um, we kind of, I don't, I, I guess maybe because 
an actor is an artist and we, we tend to look to our artists, um, you know, whether they be a writer or an actor or filmmaker or something, they're, they're engaging on a, on a uh, cultural level. So when they stand out on issues, whether it's explicitly political or more sort of cultural, we, we want them, we, we expect a little bit of that, uh, of, uh, a contribution from, from those types of people. We don't expect a cultural contribution necessarily from our athletes. And that's, that is a weird, I, I'd never thought about it. Um, but when it, it has been incredibly effective, I mean, he gives examples, especially through, from the sixties, from the civil rights mm-hmm. movement and, uh, the anti Vietnam war movement of really effective protests by athletes. And, you know, that we've sort of lost that tradition because Tiger Woods is sponsored by corporations mm-hmm. now and these corporations give them, you know, give them a lot of money and they do commercials and they expect them to sort of be just an athlete and to just represent their sport or the athleticism or the, um, you know, I mean, you look at all of our Olympic athletes, like, you know, we, mm-hmm. we held them up as like uh, examples of the American dream achieved. And so if one of them were to criticize America too actively, they would sort of lose that position of like authority over the American dream, I guess, mm. or, or, or validation of the American dream, which is what we kind of want our athletes to just be. We want to say like, oh, you are a poor black kid who came from nothing and then you made it because of mm-hmm. your pure, you know, the, the ability of your body and now you're a millionaire and that's all we need from you. We don't need you to actually criticize the things that, that kept you down and that made it so that your only way out was to be a good athlete. Like, we don't want to question those mm-hmm. structural um, that 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 would be threatening to us. So, I don't know. I I found it fascinating. Um, right. Right. And you know, John Carlos, I think who's who's mentioned at length in this article. I, I spent a day with him um, once. He li- actually lives in Palm Springs, and I wrote an article about him on uh, an anniversary of the 1968 things. This was a few years ago. Um, and he's, you know, he's a fascinating guy, but basically after he took that stand, so for those of you who don't know, John Carlos and John Smith in the 1968 Olympics, they raised their, their gloved hands, um, on the podium and basically were blackballed from sports, mm-hmm. you know, from that point forward. And John Carlos, um, is teaching high school in, in Palm Springs, or he was, um, for, for many years. And I, you know, I, I spent this day walking around with him, talking to him about his life and, and everything. And the things he also, he's in this article quite a bit as well. And the things that I learned just from talking to him about his ideals on social justice and on the role of the athlete, and particularly in his case, the black athlete, on shining a light on injustice, blew my mind. It, it wasn't things that I had thought about. And it was things that in 1968 were revolutionary in the sense that they hadn't happened before, but also considered revolutionary. And, and he was pushed aside. He and... Uh, Smith were pushed aside. And I think, you know, that's that's the, the thing I think about the pro athlete is they aren't they aren't willing to give up the chance for those corporate sponsorships. College athletes, they're young and impetuous. You know, they don't have that corporate well, sponsorship. Well, and it's not just corporate sponsorship. It's, you know, I, athletes are in a unique position because, like, when the Dixie Chicks go and criticize, you know, President Bush and then they, they're blackball for a little bit and then they come back and they're fine, you know. Um, and in fact, bigger than ever, athletes are always, you know, they don't know when their biggest 
physically perfect moment is going to happen. And especially in the case of Olympians, you know, the, the time that they are in, you know, the spotlight is for most of them, their only chance, their only chance in four years to, to snowboard one time, you know, and to take that risk to use your, to use your platform like that, I can see how that would be absolutely mind-numbingly terrifying. terrifying. Because yeah. if mm-hmm. you are blackballed, you know there's it. That's it. That's it. There's your whole career gone. And you know, so there's a reason that at the current moment, it's like, you know, what's his name, Jason Collins, the basketball player who came out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the end of his career. You know, he wasn't doing well anyway, and you know, he can use that moment to come out rather than you know about to be drafted for whatever reason you know so it's really we're really going to have to as a culture let our athletes be political without punishment of them in their sport that's the hard part it's and that's a sponsorship but that's also us as a public well it was really great essay and i know that i was happy to read it and i will pressure the athletes in my life to use (laughs) to use themselves in service it's greater good (laughs) Well, you know, the thing is, for for us as riders, aren't we always, you know, taking a stand? Because it doesn't matter what we, you know, our opinions come out in what we write about. Mm -hmm. We're always writing editorials, even in our fiction, our nonfiction, the movies that we write or the the shows that we play in. Yeah, you're always saying something. Um, And maybe that just goes to what you were saying earlier, writer, about about artists. Although it is interesting, I feel like, and maybe this is just a function of age, but I, I feel like people are less outspoken in general. Public figures are less outspoken in general than they used to be. Do you guys think that that's fair? Like, I feel like in the 90s, there was a lot more sort of acceptance that being an activist was okay. And I, yeah, I do think you're, mm-hmm. I do think that a lot of activi- activism is out of fashion and there's so much more reaction of like, ugh, those people are so annoying to all kinds of, I mean, feminism is dealing with this now. Environmentalism mm-hmm. is dealing with this now. I was shocked when, um, um, whether or not you agree with it, when Occupy Wall Street was happening, how many people's first reaction was just like, ugh, lazy assholes. Dismissive. Like, <laughs> rather mm-hmm. than like, oh, what about our entire country's history of these kind of movements? Is There was such yeah. a, right. a mental disconnect just because of where we are right now in history. Right. But it, it'll all come back around. I'm not worried. Save the whales. I think pretty much... By next year, it's going to be just a pretty pure horse culture for everybody. We're just going to go back to... (laughs) It's the joke that never dies, Julia, at your expense. Well, let's take it on a steeplechase then. (laughs) So, let's uh, just uh, remind everybody, this was um, Why Don't More Athletes Take a Stand, which appeared in Sports Illustrated. It's also in the Best American Essays, or Best American Sports Essays this year. Um, and also the most amazing bowling story ever, um, which is also in Best American Essays, but we'll uh, put a link to it up online. Both stories are free to read, and uh, and they're thought-provoking at the very least. And I think also, can I get a lot of people bowling? I feel like both of these are going to get a lot of people bowling. bowling. I'm, yeah, I kind of miss bowling. It's been a- I would like to go bowling. We should go bowling. Oh, my God. Next live podcast. Woo! Podcast and bowling. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds like it'll record really well. It sounds better than a bowling ball. And that's it for this.
this edition of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we will, I promise, finally talk about the nonfiction book Five Days of Memorial by Sherry Fink. Follow us on Facebook, like us on Twitter, and thank you very much for listening. Oh, crazy.